Hello and welcome to It Can Be Done, a new podcast series about human rights law in action, brought to you by the Migrants Law Project. I'm Rebecca Omanira Oyukanmi and I'm your host for this series. In our first episode, we travel back to 2015, when more than one million refugees arrived in Europe. And we heard from Charlotte Kilroy and Sonal Galani, two lawyers experienced in using the law to challenge social problems. And we heard from Kataiba, a young Syrian refugee, trying to reach safety and help his family. One of the things that we began to think about was whether or not Sonal and Charlotte could find a way to help Kataiba and those like him. This episode begins with Sonal and Charlotte in Calais on a cold September day. They've driven to one entrance of the camp but found that the police have blocked it. This was a common tactic to make life difficult for the refugees by stopping volunteers getting in to help them. We then decided to walk to the camp and it's around, I think, three to four miles from Calais town. Um, But it also means that you you go through the port area and you see the fences you know so tall and it's quite claustrophobic and Calais I think you've probably been there it's a very bleak industrial town Mm -hmm. and you mix in the fact that it was cold and grey and rainy Um, it really kind of you know well it summed up the day so we walked to the camp and so you know so you could see where the port was and and it in a way I think it was really valuable for us to do that because we were making the journey and the walk that a lot of refugees were making on a daily basis. When they got to the camp Sonal and Charlotte looked around they spoke to people made a note of useful contacts tried to figure out if there were any organisations already working on the ground and providing legal advice. Um, and whilst we were wandering around, you know, there were times when it was just tipping down, um, you know, and during one of those heavy downpours, we kind of um, stood under the um, Médecins du Monde shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, in any, at that point, I was struck by how many children there were um, and they seemed so young some of them about 13 14 they didn't look any older than that it was clear from looking at them that they um, were not with an adult um, they looked and that they were obviously underage they looked you know frightened but you know they were part of this camp and Sonal, I still remember really, um, you know, the moment of realisation, looking at Sonal, Sonal looking at me. Um, we, you know, we walked out and there were those children, those were children. There were unaccompanied minors here. And that was absolute revelation to me because until that point I had been aware uh, of the, the, the existence of the jungle but I had thought it was adults um, and mainly male adults you know um, and to discover that there were children there was mind-blowing mind-blowing that they were that they were in those conditions and had been left there so Sonal and Charlotte headed back to London they don't know yet what they're going to do but they do know that they have to do something We'll stay with the jungle for a moment. Hundreds of volunteers, many of them from the UK, had upped and gone to Calais that summer in 2015 
and among them was a community organiser named George Gabriel. I had been working citizens on and off for six or seven years um, and in the summer of 2015 took a lead for all of our refugee and migration work. It was stuff that was really dear to me and close to my heart. Um, me and my dad's Greek migration had always been a big issue um, that I was interested in. My journey as a community organiser really began with the uh, BNP being elected to the European Parliament back in 2009. Mm. As a student, That's I've the British in- National Party. In July 2009, then-leader Nick Griffin was interviewed on The Andrew Marr Show on the BBC about arrivals from countries in sub-Saharan Africa. We've got an unending wave of immigrants coming from Africa as illegals. At present, the position is they get, many of them die on the way over. You know, the liberal way of letting them come is killing thousands of them. And if this continues, Europe will simply sink under a mass but of If you sink the boats African instead, they'll die, they'll die in the sea. No, I said that what needs to be done as an example is to sink a couple of boats near the shores of Libya, throw them lifeboats so they can paddle back so they understand they will never get to Europe because the alternative is accepting... That While the BNP has largely faded into obscurity, its language and its ideas have become firmly embedded in the political mainstream. Remember back in episode one when we heard from David Cameron? That helps. Look, this is very testing, I accept that, because you've got a swarm of people coming across the Mediterranean, seeking a better life, wanting to come to Britain, because Britain has got jobs, it's got a growing economy, it's an incredible place. This was the politics that George was resisting in 2015. All that summer of 2015, I mean, if I think back, really, the, the government had been laying the foundations for their immigration bill. So their immigration bill was coming in the autumn of 15, and they spent all summer whipping up terrible fear and anxiety about Calais, basically to lay the ground for a disgusting bill um, that they'd bring in the autumn. So there was fever pitch around Calais, and there was the Syrian stuff, and I basically thought, we have to, we have to do something about Calais. It's not, it's not enough to just sit on the sides on this one. Think back to 2015. Remember the refugee welcome movement that swept some parts of Europe, particularly Germany? Well, in Britain, Citizens UK had started its own campaign involving well over 100 villages, towns and cities, encouraging people to petition their councils to take in Syrian families. But George and some of his colleagues figured that Calais was also part of the problem. It's also part of this story and they needed to go there. The four of them drove in September, around the same time Sonal and Charlotte went. Yeah, so the... the bit of land was called Le Land and it's basically a, it was an old disused rubbish tip so it's this huge huge area of like wasteland with large amounts of rubbish and then you stacked 5,000 people on top of that from every corner of the world so you'd walk through this massive shanty town with kind of a mixture of tents and wood shacks um, some corrugated iron jam-packed one person on top of the next on top of the next through these like sludgy, muddy, winding paths, um, noise everywhere um, of just people going about their lives. And um, yeah, you would walk through little Egypt on your right and little Eritrea on your left and little Syria was up on this uh, on the side of this sand dune. Sewage all over the place, uh, rubbish all over the place. The French had just installed at that time some very basic showers and portaloos, but it was pretty grim. George came from a tradition of community organising where the focus is on root problems, just solutions, working with people rather than for them. So on that first visit, he was direct. The focus was on eliciting information. 
And I basically introduced myself. I said I was from Citizens UK. I said that we are in the work of doing kind of justice. We don't work for people, but we work with them. Um, I told them about some of the work we were doing to get Syrians resettled from the region. And then I asked them why they were there. Um, you know, at that time, Germany was open, Sweden was open. Yeah. The conditions were horrifying. So why risk your life trying to jump on the back of a lorry or a high-speed train um, when Germany was open? The stories that George heard back then, four years ago, stayed with him. I do remember, I always remember, um, the story of these two boys, because I, I'm a brother as well, I'm a younger brother, and the story was about how this one younger brother um, had basically seen his brother, his older brother, get terribly badly kind of damaged by the Syrian regime. He was very unwell. And the younger brother, who was just 16 at the time, had decided that they had to leave Syria and they had to get out. And he had um, travelled, you know, the whole way from Syria to Calais, looking after his older brother. Um, you know, they went in the boats. Um, the first one sank. Um, they made it across. They made it to Calais. And all the time, you know, he would talk to me about, like, basically desperately looking for medication to try and keep his brother well. Um, and they'd got stuck in Calais trying to reach their sister who lived in London. Um, and the idea of a younger brother having to protect their older sibling like that, um, yeah, really shocked me. So, you know, there were lots of stories that day, the ones that stood out the clearest and the ones that were most obviously kind of morally unacceptable was the idea that a child would have to risk their life trying to reunite with a family member. Mm. Now, at that time, I had no idea what we'd be able to do. I was looking for kind of campaigning and organising angles. Um, and so I said that to them. I said, um, look, we can't do any of this for you. We can only maybe do it with you. Um, I'm going to go back to the UK. We're going to speak to a whole range of people about what campaigning might be done on the basis of what you've told me today. Um, now, we can't work with 40 of you. We need you to pick four leaders. So they nominated four amongst their number, and a fifth insisted, this old-looking guy who always wore this beanie hat. Um, and he looked a bit crazy, but I thought, well, you know, let's not argue, let him put his name down as well, and, you know, we'll see. Every day, there were new arrivals to the camp. One is a lone traveller, a businessman from Syria. We'll call him Abu Omar. Until I arrived the camp. The jungle, it's not the camp. I was shocked. <laughs> Where am I? Where? For God's sake, I wasn't looking for this place. The jungle shocked him, despite a perilous journey from Turkey to Koz in Greece, where he had crossed the sea with around 40 other people squashed into one boat. Actually, it's... It's a bit cold, but the scary is was the children screaming, you know, you can't focus on something in this four hours. So and our thinking was, my thinking was, what if something wrong happened? You know, what is if something wrong happened? Like just making plans in my head for the next step if something 
wrong happen. I can swim, but what about the women and children in this boat? You know, what should I? It's 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 very dangerous moment to think about. You know. After Greece, it took him nine months to cross the border. He was arrested several times. Eventually, though, along with several hundred other refugees, he got to Macedonia. The large crowd was met at the border by police, but this time, the border was open, and the refugees could board the trains heading to Northern Europe. You can't imagine that moment about when we were waiting the the train. Yeah. It was like I remember it's like eight department with mm-hmm. this train and five hundred of us. You can't imagine. I it it it's because it's too many people in this apartment. I was standing like this for five hours and a half, just like this. I am interviewing Abu Omar at his home in 2019 and the sounds you can hear in the background are his children playing after school. And as he's telling me his story, he gets up from his chair to mime the position he was forced into on the train, folding his body into a half crouch. Just to cross Macedonia to get Serbia border, Mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, why was everyone trying to get on that first train? Was it the only train or was everyone just desperate to to leave that? Actually, we had no idea about if the, this the first train or not because we we have been waiting this we waited this train for 6 hours in the station around the station. Mm, okay, okay. You know, so yeah. we have no idea idea about if this the only train or the first train mm-hmm. you know so this is you have to get on that yeah we everyone yeah. should get because we had no idea if there is another train or not and then from serbia the long walk to hungary abu omar fell in with a family and helped carry the youngest child who was under five and really tired they'd all been walking for hours after we get Serbia, we slept last uh, that night in like open space. Open. We have no idea where we are, but because we are, we were very, very tired. You know. And when we were crossing the border, it's like it was mud and dark. And we couldn't see what where we were walking, so our clothes it's like wet, dirty, smelly. So mm. the border was very tough because we know if we cross the border and the police arrested us, either he will send us back or he will force us to get fingerprint, mm. and if. They got, they get fingerprint of us. We can't apply for asylum with any country anywhere. Yeah. So we have to be careful before crossing this border. Mm-hmm. So that night we walked. I can't remember. 
14 hours in the darkest place I never been seen. They held hands, stayed in line snake-like. If someone let go, they would be lost. The road was narrow and somewhere to their left in the dark was a sharp drop to a deep river. Using the lights of their phones, they navigated the border, avoiding police. Thirsty, physically spent, eventually Abu Omar found his way to a city where he recovered and parted way from his fellow travellers. Some were going to Germany, a Palestinian he'd befriended was going to Italy, and he went to Paris, where he was told to go to Calais. Why? Well, everyone is told to go to Calais. For several decades, this had been a well-trodden path for people with restricted access to legal routes into the UK. There's always been a refugee migrant issue in Calais because Mm -hmm. it's a... It's a port town and it's the closest point to the UK. So they've always had refugees come. Mm-hmm. But 2015 was when it, the numbers just exploded and, and went beyond their yeah. capacity, really. Yeah. Juliet Kilpin runs a small charity called Peaceful Borders and she's also a community organiser for Citizens UK. We'll be hearing a lot more from her in the next episode. Day one at the camp... Abu Omar joins a group going to try and cross the channel to the UK. He's wearing boots, nobody's warned him that he should change into trainers. They've walked for five hours before they are caught by the police. They are arrested and taken to the police station, which is even further away, and then they are turned back. He arrives back at the camp seven hours later, spirits crushed. I get there. All right. I had no, like my place, there is no tent for me, no blanket, no mattress, nothing for me, so it's okay. Mm. I went to the restaurant, I get coffee, yeah, and I went to the big tent there. I took my shoes off. And I took my socks off. When I took my socks off, the skin comes off. Oh. All right. This serious moment for me. Hello. Okay. Now I can't wear boot or any shoes. I felt this jungle deserved this name. Really? Yes, it deserved this name. Why was it different to any places that you had already seen? Because this is a place for everyone who want to survive and he doesn't care about the other. He care about himself. I want to survive. I am in this place. I don't want to spend long time in this place because it's in bad condition. No clean water, no clean clothes, no food. So everyone was like selfish, kind of. Sure, yeah. And they should be, you know, because we are, yes, together, but not to help each other. I am here to cross the tunnel. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, in London, work had been gathering pace. 
you know, Sonal and I have a very well-oiled um, relationship in terms of division of labour. She is the solicitor who deals with um, uh, gathering evidence, um, uh, finding, uh, communicating with clients, um, um, f- finding, you know, ways to fund things and so on. And so by this point, we... we, um, we split into those more usual roles and I started looking at the law. Both Sonal and Charlotte were holding meetings with their colleagues, with other lawyers, faith leaders, community organisers. So I got set up with some uh, a meeting. Rabbi Laura Jana Klausner set up a meeting late one night, I can't remember. And Laura took me to meet Charlotte Kilroy and Laura Dublinsky who are two lawyers in her community, both work at Doughty Street. And we talked, we talked about a whole range of different pieces of campaigning, but on the Calais stuff, you know, I described what I'd seen, and I think Charlotte had just recently been out as well. Um, And she said, you know what, maybe there is something we can do for the kids. And I was looking at um, the Dublin regulation and it became immediately apparent to me that there was a legal process that ought to be being followed and once we realised that that children with relatives had a, a, a right to come here lawfully um, we then started examining why that wasn't happening Pause for a moment What is the Dublin regulation? Well, during the late 1980s, there were concerns that Europe's approach to immigration and asylum matters were disparate and a little bit ad hoc. And officials eventually came up with a series of guidelines developed by holding high-level meetings in different European cities, including one in Dublin in 1990. And that meeting was attended by ministers from across the EU. They talked about how people from outside the EU could claim asylum, where they could claim asylum, how they should be treated in the meantime, and how to make sure that families were kept together and able to find each other, things like that. More meetings were held over the next two decades. Treaties were signed, and the Dublin regulations developed alongside the creation of a common European asylum system. Looking over those early documents, you get the sense that European politicians wanted to create a unified system that was fair and would allow non-EU nationals to have access to the same rights and opportunities as EU nationals. There's a real focus on human rights in there. Later, the policy would begin to focus more on security, a special border force to patrol Europe's borders, the creation of Eurodac, a centralised database for fingerprints taken from asylum seekers. The early principles of the Dublin Convention itself were developed and formalised in 2003. By 2015, Dublin was into its third iteration, widely known as Dublin Free. And that's the regulation we're concerned with in our story. Uh, So my name's Daniel Rourke, and I'm a solicitor at the Migrants Law Project, which is a strategic legal and public education project. Sonal was Daniel's supervisor at the time. He'll be back later on in our story as one of the lawyers who helped build on the early work in Calais. But right now, he's going to talk us through the Dublin Free regulation. Now, um, it works like a hierarchy, and you start at the top, see if something applies, and you work your way down. And if you work your way all the way down to the bottom, um, what you end up with is is the provision that says um, 
if you're fingerprinted in another EU country, go back to the first country that you were fingerprinted in. Um, and if you haven't been fingerprinted or detected in any country, stay where you are. So if someone makes an application, they have to put in their fingerprints. And if they go to another country and make an application, their fingerprints will pop up on the Eurodac database. So they'll get sent back to the first country, right? Wrong. What Daniel is saying is that under certain provisions within Dublin Free, even if you're fingerprinted in one country, that doesn't necessarily mean you'll stay there. There are other things a country needs to think about before making a decision on where someone's application is decided. So within this, this hierarchy, at the top, if you think of it like a flowchart, it starts off at the top and it says, are you an unaccompanied child? Yeah. If yes, do you have a close family member in the UK? If yes, is it in your best interest to join them? Okay, you should join them. If the answer to those questions was no, well then it's do you have a, a, rel- a relative? Can the relative take care of you? Is it in your best interest to join them? then you should join them. And what does this flowchart mean in layman's terms? Well, Rupert, a senior immigration solicitor from Islington Law Centre, who also went out to Calais that summer, she spent months and months explaining the Dublin regulation as complicated as it is to young clients. So I'm trying to explain it in a bit more of a, you know, layperson's way. Um, So if I go back to the example, uh, I've got a child in the camp in Calais who's got a brother in the UK who's either an asylum seeker themselves or a refugee that child um, applies for asylum in France and then the French authorities say to the UK can you take this child and it's, it's your responsibility under the Dublin regulation because it's in the child's best interest to be with their family member and the family member is in the UK. And, and it's simplest, that's how the procedure should work, yeah. Okay. In addition, there are provisions for spouses um, and children joining parents who are refugees or asylum seekers. Um, and in addition, there is a final catch-all provision, which is a discretionary provision, where one, where either... Um, one European country can decide um, of its own motion to accept responsibility for deciding someone's asylum case Um, or one European country can ask another um, to accept responsibility for humanitarian reasons even if they're strict on a strict reading of the the law it wouldn't be that country's responsibility. That makes sense doesn't it? But it wasn't clear to the authorities at the time. This was not something that appeared to be happening on the ground. Very few people, if any, were using this provision to reunite families between France and the UK. And at this point we realised that we needed a bigger team. So um, um, I started working, someone I talked about who we might get involved and we started working with Alison Pickup and uh, Michelle Noor in my chambers as juniors and um, I spoke to a couple well, I spoke to one person about potentially leading me because at that time I was 
a junior and this was obviously a very very big case um you know there was quite a lot of skepticism from people about whether it would, was possible because once it once we realized there was a legal process and that it wasn't working the obvious culprit appeared to be france this was going to be a tough piece of work for sonor's team too being a small project based at a law centre without much admin support. Their capacity was really limited and at that time it was just Sonal and one other full-time solicitor. So I had approached uh, um, Mark Scott at a firm called Bat Murphy because I knew their work, because I'd worked there briefly in the past. Um, and um, I thought we could work collaboratively with them, which is uh, not always, well... Often it's very difficult with lawyers because everybody has very strong views which are different from everyone else and everybody yeah. thinks what they think is right and so on. So, um, But I thought we could work with um, Bat Murphy uh, as a team. Um, so I'd asked him if he was interested um, and he was sceptical at the time thinking, well, I saw, you know, and he wasn't the only one and it was reasonable because it seemed like the issues were with France you know why wasn't yeah. France doing anything yeah. um, about providing accommodation and subsistence um, to the people in the camps who wanted to claim asylum and so on um, but um, um, once we'd kind of talked it through a bit um, he he said okay yes he was he thought there was we could investigate a bit more. Sonal had spoken to George too who had been orchestrating things on the ground in Calais. Remember the five volunteers from the Syrian community that George had met? Now those kind of five leaders who we'd met in, in Calais, who'd volunteered to work with us, the thing I'd tasked them through, I said, look, I'll go back and work out what campaigns can be done. What I need from you is an accurate sense of who's here. Like, I need a census. I need to know, like, you know, how many women, how many children, what ages, what vulnerabilities, who's got disabilities, who needs medical attention... Um, that was the job that we left them with. And so I think about a month in total after I'd first gone out to Calais, I went back with a bigger team um, of people I took out who I was trying to build into the campaign. And of the five people who had volunteered, only one of them showed up to meet. Um, and of course, it was the guy in the beanie hat, the guy who looked mega old and grumpy and a little crazy. And it was Abu Omar. The man with the bleeding feet who said the jungle was a place where it was every man for himself. He is the only one who has come to help. So what's changed? Maybe nothing. Back home in Syria, Abu Omar was used to being at the heart of a close-knit community. He and his family lived above the supermarket he owned and ran. His mother and his brother's family live behind the supermarket. He's the youngest of 14 children, and each sibling has four, five, six children. Most of them lived a stone's throw from the shop. And when they woke up to the sounds of bombs one morning in August 2013, it was he and his brother who took on the task of packing everyone, more than 70 people, into a big truck off to safety. He thought it would just be for a day or two. The brothers stayed behind to watch the shop and their houses. Abu Omar took responsibility. That is just what he did. And we showed up to meet, and I remember sitting in this big blue tent, um, you know, and they were always very hospitable, so they'd insist on serving us tea, we'd take our shoes off. Walking into Little Syria and then being received was quite something. Yeah. 
Um, but anyway, we sat in this tent and, um, you know, I greeted Abu Omar and I said I'd been working hard for the last month, but I could imagine not as hard as he had, um, to which he nodded. <laughs> and I said, um, you know, I've done some digging and I think the first thing we might be able to act on is the situation of these kids who are trying to reach their family members. Um, have you done your work? And he presented this kind of long old list and he had gone round and, you know, he'd got 350-something names of people with dates of birth, where they were from, descriptions of their character and vulnerabilities. Wow, that's a huge number. Yeah, yeah, it was massive. And that was basically the total number of Syrians uh, in the camp at the time. It might be 350, it might be 150. I can't remember what it was originally. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, he'd, he'd produced this list... Um, and I said, well, you know, good news. I found some lawyers, you know, talking, of course, about Charlotte and Sonal, um, who I think can come out and maybe do something for these kids. Um, they've said they can come out in a month. Um, and he stood up and he stormed out of the tent. Um, and he was so angry with me. Um, and, you know, I persevered and persevered. Why are you angry? Why are you angry? And eventually he was like... Basically, do you know what it is like to be here for a month? In the jungle at that time, you know, four or five thousand people, I would say three quarters of them would get up every night and try. Right. And trying meant walking for hours in order to jump over lines of barbed and razor wire, mm. um, trying to evade like dogs and patrols and police and far right activists into the boot, to like clamber onto a lorry or scale the side of a train and stow away. Um, so if you imagine, at about 9 o'clock every night, 8 o'clock every night, the camp gets busier and busier and busier, and then empties mm -hmm. with all these people who are going to try. And Abu Omar had waited a month for me. He'd spent a month building the census and waiting for us to come and see, and here mm -hmm. I was saying he had to wait for another month. Mm -hmm. um, and that was why he lost his temper. Right then and there, George phoned Sonal, left her a message. So I called him and he said that actually things were a lot more urgent because there were lots of rumours floating around that the French were going to disperse mm. um, residents and it could happen within the next seven days. People were panicking um, and we needed to move quickly because once they were dispersed it was going to be very difficult to keep in touch with people and um, so on and we needed to go there as soon as possible. Sonal called Mark Scott and they made a plan to go to Calais the next Thursday. Meanwhile, George and his friend Adam gathered the contact details of people who had family in the UK. And we can get a bit of information about what the relationships are, what documents they might have to substantiate the relationship, get a bit more information about what their status was and so on, mm. so that when we went to Calais, we would already have, done, have some idea. Yeah, OK for some of the people so 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 we, uh, so George um, and he had um, a friend of his who was uh, technically on a sabbatical um, Adam O'Boyle who's really excellent at logistics and is a details person um, so they sent us excel sheets with contact details of people wow. put us in touch with some of their volunteer interpreters and what we found was the enormous goodwill and yeah. and 
as just as keen as we were as lawyers to do something there were loads of people out there who wanted to help in yeah. whatever capacity they could so people who had language skills and could mm-hmm. volunteer as interpreters they were doing yeah. that that would and it would be people i think there was one person we had who um it was a small group of um young men of Palestinian heritage who again just you know one of them was studying but so he would be in the library but he'd duck yeah. out and do you know 10 minutes interpreting on the phone if we needed and so on so there was just mm-hmm. huge amounts of goodwill so um and there was enormous amounts of work and what had happened was that George Gabriel through his contacts had made contact with somebody else who was working in um who was in Calais uh, a really lovely woman called Laura Griffiths the first time i went to calais was in august 2015 and it was around the time when there was some deaths reported in the uk press about uh refugees um dying walking in the tunnel so they were hit by a train that's laura We spoke in the hallway of an old building in London, so the sound's a little echoey and you'll hear people going in and out. So I kind of packed my car full of coats and, and, you know, reading online, like what what people need. So I did a kind of a rally round with my friends and family um, and drove out there on my own to distribute that that stuff. So I connected with an organisation... it wasn't really an organisation at the time, a woman, a woman there who was connected to Le Berge de Migrant, uh, that um, was a French organisation. So I quickly realised that what I'd done wasn't really the right idea, so I'd bought coats, it was summer, they didn't need them. But I spent time in the camp and really felt that there was something that I could do here and I wasn't really sure it, what it was. That first trip, Laura spent a week in the jungle. She was struck by the chaos and the lack of structure around some of the charity efforts. You could see there was a lot of people there that cared and were trying to do things and I was really quite scared by the fact that it was so unregulated. Like anybody could come and do something and that's great when people come with really good intentions but it's also quite terrifying because there was definitely some bad people operating there. I think what... So that, I think that was one thing. I think the second thing was around just how much kindness was there. Um, like, it, like my experience of that campus is like the best and the worst of humanity in one place. Um, and I met a lovely family when I was there um, who kind of made me lunch and just that, that kind of kindness of, of strangers, of people that, you know, are in need or um, being so open. Um, and... Yeah, I, I spent a lot of time talking with that family about their experiences and they were Kurdish, Iraqi Kurds. Yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of went back to the job and then did you quit your job? Yes, <laughs> I quit. Yeah, I quit my job, I think it was two weeks later and everyone was like, Laura, what are you doing? You're crazy. <laughs> I'm like, you're not young anymore, you can't go around doing that. Um, but it's, it's funny because it's one that I like felt really did not have any anxiety around that. I just felt really clear that this was something I had to do. But I didn't really know what the what was. Um, my employer at the time was really kind and said, well, "Why don't you go on a sabbatical, unpaid sabbatical, and you can come and have your job back six months later?" Um, so that was like an extra uh, extra bonus. So then I just um, yeah I went to Calais. So Laura slept in her car for a week in the area of the camp. She had a background in mediation and conflict resolution and wanted to put that to good effect. 
to create some sort of order among the different groups, the refugees, the volunteers, the activists, all working within the camp. But at the same time, she felt uneasy. I didn't want to make this place a better place because actually it shouldn't be here. After a month of organising meetings within the camp, Laura was tired, still sleeping in her car and looking for practical ways to help. And literally as we were leaving the jungle, Laura kind of walked by and we connected. I was like, Laura, we've started something important here. Um, We're going to try and get these kids over. Um, Will you be our person on the ground? Mm. And in an exchange that must have lasted less than five minutes, you know, she'd agreed. We both didn't know anything about each other, but you can kind of have a conversation with someone really realise, I kind of ultimately trust you, I believe what you're saying, like, I, this sounds like a good idea. And it kind of came from there. And, and what, what the conversations on that day were about, like, do you have family in the UK? You know, do you want to go to the UK? And obviously the answer to that was yes. And I think at that point, it wasn't really clear to me, and it seemed not very clear to anybody, um, <laughs> what legal case or like what legal right these people may have but I think there was a consensus that actually they shouldn't be here let's not make this this life more comfortable let's think about a legal way um, for this place not to exist or for these people to to get out of this place and so she became Abu Omar's point person on our behalf on the ground in Calais Mm -hmm. and we went back and Adam who had initiated the process began working very closely with the lawyers and I basically waged ungodly war on the powers that be through the press through parliament through every kind of avenue we could find Mm -hmm. basically building the campaign so the project is starting to take shape but it wasn't so simple from there in the next episode we'll find out will things move quickly enough for Abu Omar What's happened to Kataiba, the young Syrian we met in the first episode? And the lawyers want to use the Dublin Free Regulations to bring children to the UK, but is the law up to the job? You can subscribe for the latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us and do share with your colleagues and friends. Follow me at Rebecca underscore Omanera. Thanks for listening and see you next time.